0: We are uh, continuing a series on spiritual battles. And tonight's topic is on loving your enemies. And um, I will admit, this has been an incredibly difficult message for me to write this week. How am I, as a Christian, supposed to love people who can do things like what happened in Texas? and Buffalo, and Southern California, and over and over again. And how am I, as a Christian, supposed to love those who take moments like this and take advantage of grieving families to push political agendas and talking points, and to leverage grieving families for their own power and gain? How am I supposed to love those people? Because I felt really good about this message and this concept, loving your enemies. I felt like, God, I can do that. You know, the bully, you know, the person who I don't get along with, you know, the person on the side of the road who, you know, has some road rage. And I can yes, God, I can love them. But how am I supposed to love in these moments, and how am I supposed to preach a message with integrity on loving those that you you don't you don't you don't feel love for? And I'm grateful that Jesus helps us, and I'm grateful that he has helped that he has helped me. And so we're going to talk about this tonight. We are in Matthew chapter five. Uh, we are in verse forty-three. You can turn there with me. It'll be on the screen. Um, We have been in this series taking the Sermon on the Mount to use some of Jesus's most profound and direct teachings to allow them to shape us, to help us win the daily battles we fight every day in our lives, allowing the word and the teaching of Jesus to change, shape, and transform us. So tonight we are in Matthew 5, verse 43 through 48. Let's read this together. Jesus speaking. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends his rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Lord, help us as we allow this word to transform us from the inside out. We are in and have been in some of the most polarizing years of our country. Um, To the degree that if you don't have a position on an issue, you're a problem. If you're too vocal about your position on an issue, you're a problem. If you're not vocal enough about your position on an issue, you're also a problem. If you're silent on an issue, you're a problem. Everybody's a problem. It's a great time to be alive. And it's not just that you're a problem. It's that you are the enemy. You're the adversary. And your fundamental beliefs are in conflict with mine. Therefore, there is only one option. I must destroy you. I must defeat you. I must, I must conquer your position. I have felt this in the past. I have, um, 2018-ish, I was very deep into my Twitter feed, which was a, just something I have relinquished from my life, but sent me into just these rage spirals of frustration, hearing all the differing views and opinions and living in my own echo chamber and having this reinforced sound. It just, it did not fuel righteousness is what I will say. It fueled a sense of, sense of, of, of rage. It might be too strong of a word, but it, it felt like it. I was unhappy most of the time. And I had an opinion on a lot of stuff. Ed Stetzer wrote a book called Christians in the Age of Outrage. And uh, he convicted me with this sentiment. He writes, Ed Stetzer says, You can't hate people and engage them with the gospel at the same time. You can't war with people and show the love of Jesus. You can't be both outraged and on mission. And I don't know if you were like me, but the one thing I was not in that time was focused on mission. I was distracted and I was pulled this way and that. The context Jesus is speaking to was a similarly polarizing time period. People were looking for easy answers to complex problems. And so Jesus, this Rabbi, teacher, prophet, figure comes teaching about the kingdom of heaven. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is here and now. And then he begins to teach and preach about what life in the kingdom of heaven looks like, what it should be, and what those who are citizens of the kingdom should behave like, what they should do, what they should be like. He's teaching us how to be a new type of people, unlike the people of the world. He's not teaching behavior modification. I need you to hear that. He's not teaching, don't do this, do this, modify your behavior. He's teaching soul transformation, heart transformation, life resurrection as a new creation in Christ. How then do you walk, speak, think, and act? He's taking the letter of the law and prescribing to us the intent. What I mean by that is this. In my house, with my three children, we only have three rules. We only, we only, we have three rules for the boys. You can ask them what the three rules are. They will tell you the three rules. Our three rules are be kind, honor one another, and listen and obey. Those are our rules. Those are our rules. Could we have a lot more rules? We could have probably a thousand rules. some, some good candidates that pop up from time to time in our household, um, don't, don't hit your brother. Um, don't take toys from other kids. That comes up a lot. We don't take toys from other kids. Um, listen to your mother when she's speaking to you. Uh, we could have those rules, but how many of you know, we all just look for loopholes and rules. So you said don't throw toys. other kids. You didn't say, don't throw books. So I thought, I thought we were good, dad, because you said, so, and this is all of us. And so Jesus knows this. We could have a thousand and one rules. In fact, they had 613 laws. And what did the Jewish people do? They found ways around them. They found ways to manipulate them. They found ways to make them work for them. And so Jesus comes not to abolish that law, but to now perfectly fulfill it by ministering to us the intent of what a new creation in Christ looks like and how they act. In this section on the Sermon on the Mount, he's making really clear to us that one of the highest ethics in the kingdom of heaven is relationships. So what has he said so far? Sermon on the Mount, he's given us beatitudes, called us to be salt and light. He confirms the importance of adhering to the law and living righteously. And then he moves on to anger. Pastor Corey preached a phenomenal message on anger. Don't remain angry with each other. Reconcile quickly, even if it means delaying your offering. That's a matter of of relationships, prioritize relationships over everything else. Lust and adultery, how we look at other people, and how we see them as either objects of my pleasure or as uh, humans with inherent dignity, value, and worth, is a matter of a matter of of relationships. How do we see? And treat others. He goes on to talk about divorce, matter of relationship. He talks about making vows and how you shouldn't promise something you have no control over. Because if you do that and it doesn't come to pass, what happens? It breaks. It breaks the relationship. Then he concludes this section with these final two on retaliation and loving your enemies. And I actually think they go hand in hand well enough. I just want to spend two minutes on retaliation before getting into our primary teaching on loving your enemies. Jesus is ministering in this moment on retaliation that when you get offended, there is a way a Christ follower responds, and there is a way the world responds. This is the passage, you probably heard it before, where he says, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So imagine, just for a moment, because this is a radical teaching at the time. Like, this is a radical teaching. So imagine your first century Palestine, you run a small business. You run a little shop with your family, family-owned business. Um, it's under You're under Roman occupation, so Roman soldiers can do pretty much whatever they want. And the local tax collector comes to your shop. He's a Jewish man you knew. You used to grow up with him. He used to be a friend of yours, and he betrayed your people. He began working for the government that was oppressing you. He comes in, as he always does, with two Roman soldiers behind you. And he comes up to you, puts you his finger in your chest, and demands the tax that you had already just paid the week before. And you say, oh, I'm so sorry. I actually just paid that. I think we're square. Oh, now nah, sets him off. Now he's yelling at you, demeaning you, calling you a liar, embarrassing you in front of your family. And now he's asking you, you're going to pay twice what I just asked for, for your insubordination and insolence. And you begin to beg and say, sir, no, I'm sorry. I don't have it right now. What, what I want, how am I supposed to feed my children? How am I supposed to keep the shop open? I can't do it. And he winds up and he just slaps the mess out of you in front of your children, in front of your family. How do you respond how do you respond in that moment? Jesus says, you turn, you you show him, you show him the other cheek. In other words, you respond out of the side of you that hasn't been offended. And the misconception is that this is a passive activity. That Christians are called to just roll over and just take it. Whoever wants to take advantage of you or abuse you, I'm sorry. You just have to take it. But I don't think what Jesus is ministering to us is a passive activity. I think it's an incredibly active one. Because what he's asking us to do is an utterly different response. But to respond in a generous gracious, life-giving way where you don't retaliate but you respond with something like, sir, I know your job is hard and I know you're under a lot of pressure so I'll pay what I owe you and can I send some wine and some bread home to you and your family? Would you like something to eat while you're here? Is that passive to you? Or is that an incredible active and involved and intentional response? Jesus is calling us to live in an entirely different way because right relationships, which is what the word righteousness means is one of the highest ethics in the kingdom of God. So now we have an enemy, a pretended Zacchaeus, the tax collector. And Jesus says, you have heard it said to love your neighbor and hate your enemies But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This section of this sermon is called the antithesis section. This is the final teaching of this group where Jesus is saying, you have heard it said, but I say to you a new thing. And in so doing, he is giving us the fulfillment of the intent of the law as seen through Christ, through him, the one who perfects our faith. And all of them have to do with living in right relationship, which is why we can say we believe the greatest indicator of your spiritual health will be seen in your relationships because what you believe about God informs how you treat people. So how do we love our enemies? I think there's three ways. We'll Try to move through them quickly. I think we have to remember who we are. I think we need to see it for what it is and we need to find ourselves in him. Do you guys remember the Lion King? Love the Lion King. It's the finest movies of all time. There's this moment in the Lion King where Simba. Hopefully you know the story. I can't recap the whole movie. Simba's father Mufasa has died. He feels responsible for it. He, uh, that it was his, his fault. So Simba leaves the leaves the leaves Pride Rock and runs out. You know, Timon and Pumbaa and does the whole thing. And there's this uh, monkey out there Rafiki, and he runs into Rafiki and Rafiki tells him, "I I know your father," and, he, and then he leaves. Simba chases him down. You remember this is one of the best scenes in the movie. He says, You knew my father, and Rafiki says, Correction, I know your father. And then he leads him to this watering hole where Simba has a vision of his father speaking to him. He rolls in on the clouds. Remember this? And Mufasa and the James Earl Jones voice says, You have forgotten me. He says, I have not forgotten you. He says, You have forgotten who you are, and thus you have forgotten me. And Simba goes, well, how can I go back? I can never go back. And I'm just going to do the whole scene. I'm just going to keep going. I'm going to sing in a minute. All the millennials are like, we're locked in right now. We're like, yes. I'm watching this tonight on Disney+. Plus. This is so. Mufasa says, remember who you are. You are my son and the true king. And Simba remembers the truth about who he is, not just shaped by what he thinks he has done. And I think Jesus for us is helping us understand that the way that we can can respond in love to those who are utterly against us, to those who despise us, to those who are our enemies, is that we can remember who we are in him. We have to remember Jesus says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemies. Now the scriptures never says anywhere in the Bible to hate your enemies, which means that it is assumed or it is taught in this time, both love your neighbor. And obviously those who don't love you, it's okay to despise them or hate them. And that's clearly been taught long enough that nobody is pushing back on that. Nobody rejects that, that Jesus can even come out and say, you have heard this preached to you as the truth. You have heard that it's okay, that those who are against you, that you can fight against them, reject them, despise them. You can even, you can even hate them. And if we're honest, there's a part of each of us that goes like, yeah, but, but can't we? Like, what's so wrong about that? Right? That those who are utter, like, just take people who are utterly against the church. You're in church. You're part of the church. Those who would want to see the church destroyed, you would go, no, we need to fight against them. We need to resist them. We need to attack them. And Jesus says, no, no, you need to love them. Well, that's, that's different. So this teaching of Jesus, it goes utterly against our instincts because we have an instinctive bent to say, those who are good with us, we will lavish with love and generosity, and those who are not, we'll naturally resist against. But I think Jesus is helping us understand our instincts can't be trusted in this case. We can't go with what naturally comes out of us. So we're going to need some help because part of this is, well, you say love your neighbor, but then what's the question? Who's my neighbor? Right? What's well, what we all do. okay. You've given me a command. Now let me, let me get the exact rule. Who are the exact people that need to be my, my neighbor? And the best way I can answer that is Jesus' teaching in Luke 10. This is where he gives the parable of the Good Samaritan. And Jesus is asked by a lawyer, What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And the lawyer responds, Well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus shares this parable of the good Samaritan, a man who has fallen by the wayside by robbers. A priest comes, a man of God comes, passes by on the other side. A Levite comes, a member of the tribe of the priests of Israel comes. He passes by on the other side. The Samaritan, the one that they considered racially inferior to them. The ones who they did not trust, like, or want to be associated with, he stops, restores the man to health, puts some money in his pocket, and sends him on his way. And Jesus says to the lawyer, which one of these proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell? One of the most profound, perfect answers in scripture, the one who showed him mercy. To me, I read that and I hear, who is your neighbor? Anybody you can show mercy to. Can you find anybody you can't show mercy to? So for us, we want to define it and limit it so that we know who, who are the people who deserve our love and who are the ones who don't. And Jesus is saying, you can't follow your instinct. Anybody you can show mercy to is somebody that you can treat as a neighbor. So does that mean my enemies? Mm-hmm. Does that mean my ex-spouse? Mm-hmm. Does that mean parents who drive me crazy? And roommates who drive me crazy, and Republicans, mm -hmm, and Democrats, mm -hmm, all of them, all of them, all of them can receive your mercy. And when you love those who are against you, and when you pray prayers of blessing over those who persecute you, Jesus says, you will be a son of God. And that is a profound thought. Unless you think your sonship is rightfully yours just by being alive. If you think your sonship of the Father is just something that you deserve, this is not a profound thought, but when you realize the position to which we come to God, that this is a battle we fight every day treating people well, loving the people who just snap back at us, resisting the urge to say everything that comes to mind. Jesus says, you will be a son of God. There are things my sons do that other kids do that other kids don't do. This is, that's a weird way to say it. Let me read what I wrote. So it doesn't sound weird. There are things my boys do and don't do regardless of what other kids do. So I've heard my sons tell me about how their friends at school don't have to do all the things that we have to do, and they get to do stuff that we don't get to do. Usually it has to do with foods that they eat, shows that they can watch, and times that they do or do not have to go to bed, right? And my sons go, well, so-and-so gets to watch whatever, whatever. And so-and-so at school, he doesn't have to eat this. And so-and-so, he gets to stay up all the way till 30. And what do I say? Well, so-and-so isn't my son. You're my son. So you do what I say in this household. I think Jesus is helping them hear the same thing. You have heard it said. You have heard others teach. You have heard other people say things. But they are not my sons. You are my sons. So you ought to do the things that I tell you to do and live this way. So I don't care what you've heard. You are my child. And when you love the way that I love... All the people that I love, you will be a son of God. We need to remember who we are. We are representatives of Jesus Christ. We are sons of the living God. We have given up our right to respond the way we want to respond. We have given up the right to say everything we want to say. And we have given up the right to not love those who are against us. And if the Christian church would live this out, mm, we'll come back to that. Secondly, we need to see it for what it is. There's this, um, let's show this picture. There's a, uh, a type of artwork called anamorphic art. And from one angle, like top left, you walk into the room and you see these little hanging balls hanging from string. And it looks like a cone or some kind of triangle or some kind of shape. And as you make your way around the room to the other side and you look at it straight on in the bottom right, you see it's not a random assortment of balls hanging on string, but it's an eye. You guys have seen this? Things like this? It's incredible. It's a matter of perspective. From one angle, it just looks like, well, like nothing. I mean, it's it's still pretty kind of cool. But when you change the angle by which you look at it, It changes everything that you're seeing. Our perspective on this issue really matters. We need to see it for what it is. And Jesus uses an incredible illustration to convey this when he begins talking about weather patterns. And he begins talking about how the rain falls on the just and the unjust. My wife, Michelle, she has an uncle up in Minnesota in a place called Plainview. And um, it is just like it sounds. And uh, he has a farm up there. And there's, you know, just, I mean, it's just classic what you would picture. Maybe not in Minnesota, but this is just classic. Two really long roads that intersect. And each of the four corners are four different farms. He has one. Other owners have the other three. Now, what Jesus is helping us understand is that you cannot drive by Uncle Gene's farm and see his vibrant, lush fields with crops and all this good stuff and go, obviously, that is a man who loves Jesus. And then look on the other side of the road and see drought and famine and pestilence and go, well, clearly, this farmer does not love God. The rain did not fall on his farm. That's not how the economy of God's kingdom works. God is saying the rain falls on the just and the unjust. The sun rises on the just And the unjust, all of us experience the common grace and blessings of God, which means you cannot tell who God loves by how blessed they are. That is not an indicator of God's love. And if you're well, you cannot tell who God loves by how blessed they are. Jesus um, reinforces this with his ministry. Who are the people you think Jesus associated with as you read the gospels? It's tax collectors, prostitutes, the diseased, the spiritually tormented, the people, all of us, if you're honest with yourself, go like, I have a natural resistance to that. That's not the people that I'm, that I'm drawn to. So we need to see it for what it is. When Jesus is saying, love your enemies, we're seeing a God who shows his loving grace to all people. Especially those that we would consider on the outsides. Those that we would consider undesirable. Those that we would consider by culture standards, not by this house's standards and not by my standards. But by the sense of what culture might tell us, society might inform us. That there are certain people you disassociate with. We need to see it for what it is. And then we need to understand what is Jesus actually asking us to do to these people. When he says love your neighbor, what does he mean when he says love? Love. Because that would seem to be a pretty important feeling. Because if because if Zacchaeus comes into my shop and embarrasses me in front of my family and calls me a liar and then slaps me down to my knees, is Jesus telling me I need to generate warm feelings of love and go like, I love you, Zacchaeus. God, you're the best. Man, you are just the sweetest guy. Uh, Do you, is that what, does that even resonate? Do we think that Jesus is asking us with those who persecute us and those who are against us to just generate warm and lovely feelings? I don't think so. I think he's calling us to do something much more difficult. much more challenging and something much more long lasting. I think he's calling us to prefer those who don't prefer us to show the agape love of Jesus. That's the Greek word. You've heard it as unconditional love where it's described as the love of God. It was a word that, that wasn't in use until the gospel writers brought it back into use to use it to define the love of Jesus. It's the love of God. It's a choice that you make on how you will treat people based on their inherent dignity and value in God's eyes. And you display that type of agape love actively, not passively, through things that you do, through concrete actions. And for some of us, there are some people where that type of love is really easy. And for others, that type of love is really hard. And Jesus is saying, you don't get any special credit for showing that type of love to people you already like. When I reconcile with my wife after an argument, that is not a spiritual win for me. That is a spiritual tie for me. That is what I am supposed to do. I have a responsibility as a man of God to do that. So I don't get to go like, yes, what a good Christian. I forgave and reconciled and repented. Like that's my daily life, you guys. I do that every day. Jesus is calling us to do that to the people that we can't stand to be in a room with. He's calling us to do that to people who treat us worse than we've ever been treated is to find something within us that goes against our instinct to see them for who they are and for what they are and to respond out of a place of ourselves that is not hurt and that is not offended, but to extend the grace and the love and the mercy of Jesus Christ to them. And to do that with any consistency, we need to find ourselves in him regularly. That's the third point. Jesus concludes this teaching with these very challenging words. He says, therefore, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. I don't know that there's many more words in scripture that I've wrestled with more than that line. Because it even sounds like it almost sounds not biblical. It almost sounds like try really hard to be perfect when the entire narrative of scripture tells me how imperfect every human is and how every, even the most righteous among us have tried and have failed. And that's why Jesus is coming as the, as the one who fulfills every good thing in scripture is so rewarding and so, so majestic and so beautiful because, because I don't have to be perfect because he was perfect. And so Jesus says, now be perfect. For me, that's a head-scratcher. The Greek word for perfect is this word, teleos. It means complete or mature or finished, like in a final form, or perfected. When you hear a testimony, like there's a story I heard. Uh, 1960, Martin Luther King. He comes out of his house one morning, and in his front yard on the street are all these reporters And standing, sticking in his front yard is a cross that had been burned overnight. And Martin Luther King Jr. puts on a suit and tie, walks out with his young son, goes out to this cross, picks it up, holds it in his hands, and prays a prayer of blessing and favor over those who had put it there. This is a man who was marked and defined by the teachings of Jesus. This is a man who was immersed in the gospel. And when you hear a story of a man behaving like that, what words come to mind to describe him? A perfect human, mature, wise beyond age, something other than what I am something I could never be, I wouldn't respond like that. Jesus is helping us see and challenging us to see that when we behave and respond to those who are against us in the way that he would behave and respond to those who are against him, we operate as the most complete version of ourselves and the most perfect version of ourselves because we're behaving like him. Let me just close with this story. There's a moment at the end of Jesus' life where I think all of his teachings culminate together. And you see it as he's hanging on the cross. And we know the story. He's been wrongfully accused. He's been arrested. He's been, been falsely tried and convicted. He's been... He's been beaten, he's been dragged up a hill, he's been nailed to a cross, and he's hanging there and they're mocking him. Who will save you now, king of the Jews? And he hangs on a cross and he utters these words of prayer. Father, would you forgive them? They don't know what they're doing. And I wonder if that might be a prayer we carry with us every day into the face of those who persecute us, in the face of those who are against us, in the face of those who would belittle us, in the face of those who hurt us. If there might be something that we carry that images Christ that says, Father, be merciful to them. I think they know what they're doing. I don't think they're responding to me or to this in the right way. So God, would you have mercy on them? There's no moment let me say it a different way. Let me not make a declarative statement like that. That might be one of the greatest moments for me of these teachings of Jesus being displayed in a way that I could never see them displayed by any other person. At the end of your life, suffering the worst at the hands of those who have made you their enemy. And Jesus never made them his enemy. But they made him their enemy. And they hung him up there to die and to kill him. And he utters words of forgiveness. And so for us as a church and as a people, I wonder what would happen if we formed ourselves, allowed the Spirit of God to form ourselves into the image of Christ, that we might be a people, who put our faith and our hope and our trust in the one fully complete human, in the one who is the human that we could never be, that we try every day to be, and yet we can never, we can never fully fully get it right. I wonder what would happen if we modeled our lives after Christ who laid his life down for me out of an act of this selfless life-giving love the type of love that turns an enemy into a friend. And if we were a church that believed that that could be true for every single one of us instead of feeling like every attack against the church or against you or against your beliefs was something that was a call to arms and to battle, but was a call to love and to gracious kindness. If we could utter the prayers, Father, forgive them. Have mercy on them. They don't know, they don't know you and they don't know what they're doing. I wonder what would happen to our community I wonder what would happen to our nation. I wonder what would happen to each and every one of our families and our lives if this type of selfless, life-giving love was displayed through us. This might be the one spiritual battle we talk about where the answer is not embolden yourself to arms and put on the power of mighty God to declare what is yours in Christ's name. But this is the spiritual battle where it's a call to surrender. And it's a call to give of yourself selflessly to the end of yourself. And it's one of those calls that I think will be the most transformative things that we can ever experience. And I pray for you and for me, that we would be a people that allow this word to transform our hearts because this is the type of love that turns enemies into friends.